You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remso Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics Podcast at secondprintcomics.com. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. So privacy, when it comes to what big tech is doing, or when it comes to what the federal government is doing, as well as state and local government for that matter, uh, it's a complicated topic and often a topic that I have to familiarize myself with pretty often because it seems like each time one of these issues comes up, it's as if we have to start from ground one in terms of trying to understand all the complicated factors. But today, we've got a great guest on who's going to kind of fill us in on some of the stuff that is impacting you, whether you knew it or not. It's always the stuff that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about that is worth talking about, which is why I went ahead and brought on our guest today from the Independent Institute, Jonathan Hofer. He's a research and marketing associate there, and what he basically does is he talks about this issue of privacy, what it entails in terms of how it affects everyday law-abiding Americans. Uh, He's a recent political science graduate from the University of California, Berkeley, and his interests include information privacy law, municipal surveillance, and the impact of emerging technologies on civil liberties. So sit back, relax, learn, and enjoy. Jonathan, welcome to the program. I've been reading some of your work over at the Independent Institute, and for for folks that are new to the organization, to yourself, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and link to everything uh, related to your op-eds and such in the show notes. But what I kind of want to do is I kind of want to shed a light on the area of privacy right now for two reasons. One, I always get worried about topics that seem really hot one minute, and then we kind of jump onto something else, and then there's always this part of me thinking, oh, like, is it still going on? Is there something I need to worry about? What What am I not knowing? And, and also, this is an area um, that I'm, I'm a bit ignorant in. Uh, I have a general understanding. I mean, for the most part, people are usually afraid, like, what is the administration doing? What is the government doing uh, to go ahead and compromise and invade my privacy? And then, you know, you've got a lot of the more recent stuff with big tech and corporations as they're starting to skirt the lines of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. So to kind of give people like myself a general idea of what's going on, what are some of the topics that you've been focusing on recently and some of the things that you think people should pay a little bit more attention to as it might affect them in their own daily lives? Yeah, thank you for that introduction. I believe that since roughly 2013, in the wake of the Edward Snowden revelation, a lot of people have been preoccupied uh, with 
government surveillance at the federal level, in particular the FBI and NSA surveillance capabilities. And what my research does is it looks primarily at the municipal level of government, that is your city government and your county government, how they use uh, surveillance technologies. And I differentiate the two because while the NSA has vast capabilities, a lot of things that affect people's daily lives, even when they're going to work, um, sitting at home, the surveillance that they're actually interacting with is at the local level, not so much the federal level. So technologies that I'm researching include things like license plate readers, facial recognition technologies, and things like uh, gang databases. So we're, we're talking more than just your regular red light camera. Correct. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's been popping up in especially California uh, and New York as well are automatic license plate readers. And those are uh, high FPS cameras that can uh, read license plates. They store the numbers in a database for recall by police officers and detectives. Uh, they also are able to talk to each other. So that enables them to do live tracking of vehicles. Um, it's also used to maintain what are called hot lists, which are a list of cars reported stolen. Um, and it poses a pretty unique privacy threat, uh, not just because it's possibly maintaining a log of where your car is traveling, but these cameras don't just pick up license plate uh numbers themselves, uh, pictures of drivers, political bumper stickers, so forth. Uh, they can be caught up in these systems. One of the reasons that I really got interested in this topic was I, um, <laughs> back in college, I was pulled over by a sheriff's officer. Oh, there you um, go. There's yeah. always a reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was on the way back from Thanksgiving vacation. I was in a rental car with my brother and a automatic license plate reader uh, identified the car we were traveling in as stolen. And the car had in fact been reported stolen in a different city previously, but it was immediately recovered. However, the database wasn't properly maintained. So it was never cleared off this hot list. And so when the camera caught the car and I was subsequently pulled over, um, we got detained at gunpoint. I got tackled and it really invigorated me, uh, you know, surveillance isn't just about privacy per se. It's, it's also how it changes human behavior. And when you have automatic license plate readers um, working with police officers, police officers don't necessarily know how the database is maintained, um, the efficacy of the information contained on the database, if it's regularly cleared or audited. And that has real world consequences for everyday drivers. Oh, man, I, I had a whole series of questions a moment ago, but just learning that bit of information completely changes my tone. Um, you know, what, well, what happened to you? I mean, I, obviously, that's that's horrifying. I, I hope that things were later rectified. But, um, you know, play devil's advocate. 
I mean, these sounds like, you know, a device or a program that is ultimately just trying to go after criminals, especially since, you know, we're all using public roads. We should kind of affect we, we should kind of suspect that, you know, some degree of surveillance is being used to go ahead and track down uh, criminals. But in terms of what happened to you specifically, is that is that something that happens frequently or is that a rare situation? Like yeah. So here's yeah, here's the disturbing thing. Um NREC, which is one of the um, organizations that maintains some of these databases, they're kind of an intermediary for uh, vendors of these cameras and police agencies. So they kind of share the data in between police officers. Their own, uh, by their own admission, they say it misidentifies one in every 10 cars. So if we're talking about a a very congested street or a bridge, a lot of these cameras are mounted on interstates. These cameras are reading hundreds of cars, you know, every couple minutes. And if it misidentifies one in every 10 cars stolen, you have, um, you know, you have a whole list of suspects of car theft. And um, that leads people to be tamed uh, really without any credible evidence other than it was misidentified um, by these cameras. Uh, since my case, I've been in contact with a number of other people. Um, and this incident, uh, things of this nature, unfortunately, are more common than not. Um, and there have been cases where people have been detained at gunpoint precisely just because a license plate reader identified their car as stolen. Uh, frequently, it's um, switched license plates. So sometimes criminals will swap out license plates of cars that have been stolen. So when that license plate um, is reported stolen, the car that the license plate has been affixed to by a criminal that car gets reported, not the car that has actually been stolen. Um, so things of, things like that uh, are a unique challenge that our laws uh, and case law have not really caught up to. How does law enforcement justify keeping something that has a 10% you know, false rating around? Because if anything else had that degree of um, you know, mistakes, it, it would be taken off. Like nobody would tolerate it. One would think, <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, um, we don't really see that too often. Um, in part because a lot of these, um, a lot of city police departments aren't actually maintaining records. So that's the, the first problem. Um, a couple of years ago, when I started studying this, there was only one city in the entire nation that I came across, and that was the city of Piedmont, that kept any record of their automatic license plate readers. Uh, since then, city ordinances have compelled uh, local departments to maintain some records. But frequently, what police um, departments say is that um, we need these to recover stolen cars. Um, it's unclear if they're even effective at doing that. Piedmont's own numbers kind of make it seem like it's a wash. 
Um, but it's still something that we need to look forward to. Uh, they also sometimes will cite uh, Amber Alerts saying um, we can, you know, see if a child's kidnapped or so on and so forth. I don't have cases where a license plate reader hit led to a recovery of someone that was kidnapped. It, it just hasn't happened. So when it comes to the, the lack of record keeping and the ability to actually keep it organized, you know, is that, is that done by intent? Like, are they, are they purposely doing this? Because at the end of the day, it's just a giant spending opportunity uh, for, for local government and contractors, or is it a, a, an over an overlapping issue with, you know, just the lack of people and lack of staff and a lack of, you know, contractors for vendors who are able to put up this program. I think it's a mix of both. Um, the California state auditor did a audit of, I believe six different police departments in the state of California itself. And they found it was mostly just negligence. So a lot of uh, the staff wasn't properly trained. Uh, records really weren't kept safe. Uh, a lot of times it was even a police officer is just the IT guy. Um, some of the people that were purportedly responsible in those departments for maintaining these records didn't even know that they were supposed to be doing this job they weren't aware of the state laws that required them to maintain good records. However, there are cases that I think are deliberately malfeasant. Um, outside of California, there is a case in, um, I believe it's Birmingham, Alabama, where uh, police officers were using car-mounted license plate readers. Uh, normally they're affixed to poles over roadways, but you can put them up on cars, usually for parking enforcement. And they were driving around predominantly um, Muslim neighborhoods, which I imagine are quite sparse. Um, and th this is also true in New York City. Uh, you have police officers using these cameras to target minority neighborhoods. So they frequent mosques, they'll drive around parking lots. Um, in Alabama, they're driving around predominantly African-American neighborhoods. So it's a mix of both. You, you do have outright incompetence, but it's also, I think they're, they're sometimes covering up for uh, biased policing. I, I know here in, in Virginia, uh, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but in the year 2019, I had spent over $3,000 in traffic tickets. Now, that sounds like I am just the most dangerous driver ever, so I want to provide some context. As I was driving from Virginia uh, into D.C. on I-95, what they had was they had a series of construction zones, and what the local Fox affiliate did was that they realized that months after construction on this on uh, on on these roads had basically ended uh, majority of the signs as well as the cameras were kept up and what they were doing was they were moving the speed cameras around regularly so what they would do is they began to take down the signs uh, for where there were construction zones, but they left the cameras up there for, I think it was around four or five months. So I was getting hit with these speed tickets uh, in the District of Columbia, and, and they just kept racking up. So, you know, people are looking at me. They're like, dude, why are you just flying through uh, construction zones? And I was like, well, you know, 
there's there's only so much I can do. Like I don't see the signs, and I use the Waze app, so I can usually uh, you know get detections of where these cameras are and where construction zones begin and ends. But you can only do so much when the people that are monitoring and taking care of all of this keep moving things around. And uh, I wasn't the only one. Uh, they were racking up hundreds of thousands of speed tickets a day from people in and outside of DC. And the local government was intentionally doing that because it was a giant revenue stream. So they were like, you know what? No one's going to go ahead and stop us because I actually wanted to go to traffic court um, to fight it. But, I mean, the the process of doing that, I would have had to take a day off work. I wanted to get a lawyer involved because I – found as as many other people did that this very much seemed like the local government was doing this intentionally in order to catch people and basically frame them for speeding in a construction zone that wasn't there so i i gave up but what this local fox affiliate did was they they you know they looked at the evidence they looked at the patterns and everything and eventually the the you know the the government of dc essentially just said uh yeah, well, you know, we're not going to deny it, but like, you know, there are things that there are things too complicated for you to understand. And everyone was like, what, what's hard to what's hard to understand about you keeping speed cameras uh, in areas where construction ended months ago and you're still accusing people of speeding in construction zones. So as soon as that uh, two part series came out, uh, the cameras went away. And that's also yeah. when when I stopped getting speeding tickets. And ironically, as 2020 rolled around, I just started working remotely. So then it was also at the, it also got to the point where it's like, well, now it's like you know that that whole opportunity is gone. But it was one of those moments where they where they looked at all these cities official all, all these city officials, and uh, no one denied it. That that's the thing. And what they basically said was, you know, you can go and you can file for all the appeals. You can go ahead and request all the information. But we're the bookkeepers. We're the people doing all of this, and we could take as much time and make it as difficult as we want to. Yeah, and I think um, similar to that point. I would imagine what most of these cameras are also used for is enforcing car registration to the state uh, department of motor vehicles um, because they would be able to see um, is this car being driven around and is their registration active. So it's a, it's very much um, a revenue thing for a lot of these local governments. Do do you feel there's ever a need for any type of surveillance? I mean, I'm, I'm talking just what what most people would consider general safety measures, like red light cameras and stuff like that. I believe that there could be. I'm not, uh, you know, across the board anti surveillance in any form or fashion. Uh, it is interesting that you mentioned red light cameras, though. I am generally not in favor of red light cameras. Um, but that's, it kind of falls under the category of they're needlessly expensive and totally ineffective. Uh, so even relatively mundane surveillance like red light cameras do pose uh, some risk. Um, but for the most part, they're just not effective at keeping the public safe. I think some forms of surveillance uh, are warranted. Um you know, the United States federal government has gone to great lengths to combat terrorism. And while most measures I disagree with, and I believe are massive Fourth Amendment violations, I think there is a place for um, reviewing 
people who have clear fact patterns and are an articulable threat to other people's safety. I do not believe in uh, dragnet surveillance. I don't believe that surveillance should be indiscriminate. I think it should be highly particularized to specific individuals. And not only does that protect uh, people's civil liberties, but uh, it makes the surveillance actually more effective. Uh, That's one of the things that we see in reviewing um, large surveillance programs that the government does is that if you're watching everyone, you're actually not doing a very good job of, uh, you know, surveilling. And uh, it's hard to find a needle in the haystack, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, right now w- within the the world of podcasting, I mean, for for corporations specifically to to try and you know create a parallel example, uh, we've seen what Google has done, we've seen what Facebook and Twitter have done in terms of censoring certain types of free speech, and right now you have um, certain commentators and journalists like folks over at the New York Times are calling for Apple. Um, and other major podcasting apps and directories to begin to actually take down uh, episodes of podcasts that, you know, talk about things that they don't want them to talk about. And already, you know, for Apple specifically, which is still the number one aggregate and discovery source for podcasting online, um, they are already pretty good at going after, like, explicit uh, terms of service violations, calls to violence, uh, you know, very very directed and explicit hate speech, uh, anything that could be remotely criminal activity. But what these activists want to do is they want to begin to really zero in on people who they claim are putting out false information or fake news or things like that. And they're asking Apple to go ahead and, you know, to really begin to police the content. But what Apple and other um, advocates against this idea have begun to point out is that, you know, there, there, are million, there are literally millions of podcasts on Apple. And that, that doesn't specify as to whether or not they're active or not. And every day you're getting millions of hours of content being uploaded. Um, essentially, there's no way that Apple as a company alone will ever be able to create either a manned ability or algorithm that could go ahead and justifiably begin to target things. And even when you begin to create the new term, terms of service and policies for that, uh, that, that creates another issue. So Apple has actually, you know, what I think has done, um, you know, the, the smart move. They, they haven't said anything. Hopefully this issue will kind of die out because everyone kind of knows it's, you know, it's one of those situations where with this specifically, um, you know, the, the genie's kind of already outside of the bottle. So it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, you could, but like, what does effectiveness even look like and who's writing the policies and are they people you trust? Are they policies that are justified? Um, you know, are the algorithms working? Are the people objective? I mean, it just creates all these other issues that people think are simple, but it just creates, it, it creates more and more problems each time you encounter something new. Most definitely. Uh, And I think to your point, a lot of times we were hoping for a technological uh, fix, but uh, designing an algorithm that effectively polices content is nearly impossible, Um, at least not perfectly so. Uh, One of the pieces that I recently wrote was on how copyright bots uh, that populate the internet are so prone to false positives 
the notable case of that would be Content ID by Google uh, for YouTube. And it overplaces all the content. It, it takes down uh, public domain works. Things like TV static has been known to trigger it. Birds in the background of people's videos. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, that one, yeah. that one's actually genuinely funny. Yeah, um, and stuff like that, you know, it's kind of incidental, but then it'll do things like take down the Mueller report. <laughs> so uh, when we have bots policing our digital content, it's a very big recipe to the, for disaster. And one of the things that we've been taking note of over here is that a lot of this is due to bad public policy. Um, Google and Apple they have a vested interest in policing some of their content already. Uh, they don't want it to be overrun with explicit material or things that are generally not suitable for their audiences. Um, however, once you get the government involved and they, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of them is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which I'm sure uh, you and most people our age are familiar. Oh, if freaking only, Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah freaking exactly. Taylor yeah. Swift. Um, so that heavily incentivizes companies to preemptively take down content because what the law says is that if someone commits uh, you know, copyright infringement on your platform, you yourself are responsible but if you take down their content, uh, you kind of get a free pass. So um, it, they become overzealous and that harms uh, dissemination of free information because when it takes down um, stuff that should be public domain, uh, you know, it hurts government transparency when public documents um, for the sake of educating the public about what their government is doing are taken down by algorithms. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of those situations where I, I remember I was working at the media research center at the time. You had a lot of, uh, you know, conservative public figures, Glenn Beck, L. Brent Bozell, who was my boss at the time and, and others, they went and met with, um, with uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. And this is back when Facebook had the curated news section. And Zuckerberg himself admitted that there was an issue with personal bias getting in, in the way of, you know, certain outlets, you know, not getting uh, a fair shake in terms of actual trending content on Facebook. So what uh, he did and Jack Dorsey would later follow suit at Twitter was they got rid of the human curator teams. And instead what they did was they put in these, these algorithms that essentially began to pick up and show what was trending based off uh, reach and engagement rates of certain content on the platforms. The issue of that, though, is that, as we've discussed on my program before, is uh, this concept known as algorithmic bias, where much like uh, Isaac Asimov's um, you know, whole code of robots or whatever it's called, it's like the, the machine or the code is simply a reflection of its creator in terms of its ethics and its morality. So what Facebook and Twitter have done is they've created these codes and these algorithms to go ahead and take down certain content and stuff. But what we see is that it's almost worse than uh, the human curators for two reasons. One, it works way more effective at pulling down content and taking away people's ability to communicate. But secondly, what it did was it created a giant 
uh, you know, situation where they could just justify things by saying, well, you know, uh, we stand by it because it was the system or if something has happened that they really get caught on, well, they'll say, oh, well, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, something we didn't predict in the algorithm or the code or something. It's not us, but you know, we're sorry. So it gave them this opportunity, basically get, getting out in these situations. And, and that's what really scares me about like what's going on with, um, with, with the proposals for, vaccine passports because you've got Democrats in the House specifically saying, well, you know, we're not going to do anything federally, but we're hoping that the private sector comes in. And then what's going to happen when the private sector is basically incentivized by the federal government specifically to go ahead and start doing this or what they're doing in in New York State where they want to start doing that? Uh, I, I don't I don't take a stance on whether people should get vaccines or not. That's not the point. But the problem is of this, I mean, with vaccine passports and with all this other stuff, what you've basically done is you've killed HIPAA. Uh, All your HIPAA rights are basically dead. And what we're trying to do is we're hoping that the same people who make all these other faulty programs are going to get this one right. Because obviously they've created a track record of getting things right before when it comes to all these other things that we're constantly having issues with. So it seems like people, as, as you put it, they want this magic solution that just isn't it is not one, it's not only practical, but second, it's just not possible to do, especially in a nation as large as ours. Most certainly. I'm not sure if you caught it, Remso, but I, I found this to be hilarious. Um, the vaccine passport used in New York City, I want to say it's called Excelsior. It's uh, developed in part by IBM. Um, it allegedly runs off blockchain. And for people uh, who are aware of blockchain, blockchain is essentially just a digital form of a ledger that's made up of blocks, which are a group of data. It grows as the data grows. And that's essentially it in a very dumbed down version. It's not clear at, it's not clear at all why this would be used for a vaccine passport other than that it's a flashy buzzword for Andrew Cuomo to just absolve all concerns about the privacy related to a vaccine passport. Yeah, like that doesn't that doesn't make me feel better at all. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, because people were asking, how does it work and how does it keep our data safe? And it's just like, oh, blockchain. It's like, well, I feel like that yeah. word is just thrown around so often and people barely understand it. Like it's still public. And yeah. like, you know, with, with Bitcoin, you know, not not to get into a crypto ramp, but like, you know, Bitcoin's biggest thing was that it was private. Well, it's not as private as it was like five, 10 years ago. If you right. can figure out certain patterns, and if you can run a software to begin to pick up on the ID chains and everything, you could pretty much tell who people are. Yeah. And I, I think it turned out to become just this hot, flashy buzzword that if you have a new right new tech item that's how you sell it is you just say blockchain um and i think that's a big drawback because there's a lot of a lot of potential upsides i think with a good vaccine passport in terms of privacy relative to the kinds of vaccine passes that we see in europe or asia for example um the ones in uh outside the united states a more or less substitute for your vaccine card. And I think um, if we were to have a vaccine passport, again, I'm against the government doing so, but 
if a private enterprise were to make one, it should up it should obfuscate all your personal data. It should be anonymous. There should be no data collected. Everything should be on your personal devices. Um, but I'm still waiting to see how that plays out. Do Do you really feel comfortable with that, though? Because what we've seen over the last, you know five, six years specifically from the latter end of the Obama administration, especially through the Trump years, it's that these big corporations are basically uh, beginning to act as extended arms of the government when it comes to supporting and pushing for policies, lobbying when it comes to their own terms of service. And when you look at their growth, regardless of industry, whether you're dealing with massive big box stores or big tech itself, you know, uh, what, what my concern is that I've seen a lot of libertarian economists say, well, you know, as long as it's private, not public, that's okay. But what we're seeing is that I feel like a lot of people are ignoring the intention. It's like you don't need the government to enforce it. You don't need the government to create um, these massive barriers for people to go back to what is considered normal life because the the public sector is doing it. So whether or not it's public or private, I feel, and I don't use this term loosely, um, you know, with COVID vaccines one minute, it'll turn into, I'm sorry, COVID passports one minute, it'll turn into another type of passport, another type of tracking, another type of identification, which is going to limit access to certain things. We're becoming a, almost a, a utilitarian segregated society. Yeah, I think it, it's a definite slippery slope and should be resisted. Um I also, yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. A lot of these tech giants, uh, they're not friends of the free market. Uh, they're not friends of digital privacy or even what I'd call digital civil rights. Uh, in many cases, they're the ones lobbying for a lot of regulations and control. I think with the vaccine passport, yeah, it does pose a very, um, I'm worried that it normalizes surveillance. I mean, it it literally does that. And and what we're trying to establish right now is this idea that, you know, well, if you don't want to go to Walgreens to pick up your prescriptions or something, go elsewhere. And then, you you know, Walmart ends up saying, well, if you don't want to do this, you can't pick up your stuff here. Just go to another grocery store. And it turns into the, you know, like build your own Internet, build your own social media, build your own store, build your own bank. Um, I, I think that's often, and I'm not saying you're saying this at all. I want to, I want to just make sure I'm not inferring that. But you know, for for the critics of people of of these, you know, these passports, saying, oh well, you know, if you don't like it, just go elsewhere. It's gonna get to the point for where a lot of people just don't have options. And you know, I'll I'll state it because I'm I'm not afraid. I've already come pretty clear about it. Like I'm not getting the vaccine. I don't care what company comes out with it. Like I already had COVID. It was pretty bad, but you know, I'm immune to it now. I don't want to do that. I don't even really like flu shots. Uh, when I, when I was in the army and I got a flu shot, I always got sick when I got out and I stopped taking them. I'm, I'm pretty good, but it's one of those situations where it's like my own ability to take care of myself is going to be 
incredibly limited because it turns into like this weird situation where it's like, you know, my body, my choice, you know, the civil libertarians and the left used to say, well, you know, it's your body, your choice. No one should force you to put anything in or take anything out. But when it comes to this, it's almost like, you know, you're murdering people and everything that you do is entirely your fault because you don't want to get a vaccine. And I think it, it would also uh, make the so-called digital divide much worse. Um, you know, there, there's, um, the QR codes in restaurants are one thing, but, uh, having, uh, literacy for one smartphone is another thing when you just simply want to move or go to the grocery store, you know, our grandparents or older generations, they don't know how to use their phones. I'm sure some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Um, you know, people who are really poor might not have a smartphone. And- Dude, I have an embarrassing. I have an embarrassing confession for you. I didn't know how to scan a QR code on my phone until like January, <laughs> and I'm 26. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there's still hope for you. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, never too late to learn. Um, but I still know people with like flip phones and stuff. So it's like, are we going to say they can't move around or go to the grocery store? And of course, uh, you know, I'm sure the response would be, oh, they could just print something out. But it's it's a huge inconvenience. And I think it does uh, it does encroach on civil liberties and at the very least freedom of movement and freedom of association with other people. Yeah. And, and to, you know, we're, we're getting a bit close on time. One thing I really want to get your, your insights on are, are, are messaging apps. Uh, I, I've, I've been telling people this story about when, uh, when, when like parlor was taken down in January and all these other apps were under the radar and people finally discovered that the messenger app from Facebook was reading their conversations. So it was either, you know, removing links to dangerous sites or it was sending you ads based off the stuff you're talking about. So my mom of all people, my mom's in her fifties. Uh, she downloaded signal for the first time because all her, you know, right wing friends were saying, get on signal, get on here fast. So she was really proud to set up signal. And I said, congratulations. Congratulations, mom. According to the media, you're now in the number one messaging app for drug dealers and terrorists. <laughs> and uh, she was like, what? I'm like, well, that, you know, that that's what it's always being accused of. And, uh, you know, I'm on I'm on signal for the fact that when I want to communicate with somebody, I, I, I take it back to this idea. Um, if I would say it to you face to face and I wouldn't want people listening, I should have the same rights and the same ability online. And, and that's why apps like Signal and Telegram exist. Uh, WhatsApp used to have that before it was bought out by Zuckerberg. But that seems to be something that that people started to really begin to understand for the first time. And now it's crazy. Each time I go on Signal, people I never thought of a million years of downloading that app are now suddenly all on there. And it's like, congratulations, you're part of the great grand conspiracy. Um, so, So what do you see going on on that front? I am a big fan of Signal. Uh, so that was designed by uh, Moxie Marlin Spike is his name, former uh, head of... That's such a uh, badass name. Right? Uh, <laughs> he worked on... He worked with Twitter for a while before leaving. But no, uh, Signal is an excellent platform. So there's a few things that you would want for a private messaging app. You'd one want end-to-end encryption. That should be standard. And what that means is... 
Um, if someone were to intercept your message, it wouldn't be readable to them. Um, that is unfortunately common when you have things like police stingrays, which are effectively man-in-the-middle attacks is what we call them, where they mimic uh, cell phone towers and intercept. Um, they can actually intercept almost all phone communications. Oh, wow. Um, that would be standard. I believe Apple's default messenger also does that if you're texting another iPhone user. Um, I don't know that off the top of my head, though. Um, so one, you'd want end-to-end -end encryption. Next, you would want some sort of uh, file encryption or hard drive encryption. And basically what that means is um, your texts, once they're stored on the phone, are encrypted. So if someone were to steal your phone and try and search through its contents, they would be unable to read those messages. So you want protection while it's stored on your phone and you want protection while your messages are in transit. The other thing is you would want two-factor authentication. Um, this is a little bit, um, when I talk to people, this seems a little bit of a hassle to them, but. Uh, I, I'm a fan of 2FA, but it seems like for a lot of people, it's like if they're given the option, uh, they they usually end up going with it. it. It's for the it's for the certain programs and services where it's like you're not given that option, where sometimes it can create issues for them. Yeah, and one of the things that Signal does actually very well is you can set up a biometric um, uh, unlock for it. So that's I just do the pin yeah. that comes yeah. up like every two weeks, where it's like re-verify your pin. If you get it wrong, it just erases your conversations. Yeah. Um, and it's not totally foolproof, but those add so much security. Um, you want to know something funny about that, though. Um, so let's say that you were detained by a police officer and they had a warrant. And one of the things included in the warrant was they could search your phone. In the Ninth Circuit, which is a big portion of the United States, so it spans California to Idaho, Um and the, I forget which circuit it is, but it includes the state of Ohio. You are not protected against a search of your phone if you use a biometric unlock. So you are, if you do have a biometric unlock, your phone is not protected. Um, if you have a pin, for example, you're protected, um, Interestingly, by the Fifth Amendment, not just the Fourth Amendment, but actually the Fifth Amendment, if you unlock your phone with your fingerprint, let's say, or your thumbprint, um, courts in the Ninth Circuit have ruled that the police can, in fact, compel you to open up your phone and you are not protected by the Fifth Amendment. That, that, sound, that, that sounds like such a cop-out. What was the rationale? Oh, it gets because even it's worse. Like, it's like yeah. with the phone. All they have to do is grab your phone and stick it in front of your face and they're in. Exactly. So um, the courts don't, unfortunately don't see it like that. What they see is that a biometric access isn't equivalent to putting in a pin. But there's this old school Fifth Amendment case law that says police can't force you to disclose what they call, and they use this phrase, content of one's mind. So in in their mind, uh, Fifth Amendment protects you against testifying against yourself. 
they say that if police officers required you to tell them your password, that would be a Fifth Amendment violation. But it's not a Fifth Amendment violation if they put your finger on the biometric sensor and unlock your phone. That is such bullshit. Yeah, it's totally... uh, it, it's, it, it literally sounds yeah. like the cops are writing these laws. It gets so bad. It, and it's crazy. There's so many laws like this. Uh, we've had the internet for, I don't know how long. We've had digital technology for years. The laws that we are operating under are decades and decades old. They have not caught up to technology ever. Um, your inter- the laws that govern what police can do to your emails were written before like Gmail ever existed before smartphones were ever a thing. I mean, I mean, they're still using communication laws going back to like when we were just getting telephone lines set up and what yeah. they're, and, and I actually think that they like that because what they can do is they can, you know, quote unquote, interpret the modern sense. And that allows them some egregious uh, flexibility in determining how they can use those dated laws in order to go ahead and justify just about basically anything. Yeah. The laws that allegedly permitted a lot of what the surveillance that the NSA was doing were based on wiretapping laws from the sixties. So in their mind, internet is the same thing as a landline which the technologies don't even work the same. Uh, The level of data that is on a computer versus what's on the communicated over phone is vastly different, but uh, we're still living under archaic laws. Crazy, crazy. Well, Jonathan, uh, you've terrified me. So good job. Now, now all this stuff is going to keep me up until like 3 a.m. at night, but I'm, I'm glad we have this conversation because we covered a lot uh, during this time. And I think what is important for people to understand is that regardless as to what administration is in charge, regardless as to who's doing it, um, you're, you're being impacted at every level, everywhere. And half the time it has to do with just basic understanding of what you're consenting to half the time, because that that's the that's the scary part. A lot of people, you know, it comes to the public sector. I'm sorry, the private sector. We're consenting to a lot of things. And I mean, we have the ability to edit and control and customize our experience in a lot of these ways. But half the time we're just granting it, you know, carte blanche. And then when it comes to our government, we, we get so caught up on the big national hot button issues. We really begin to, uh, you know, forget get that sometimes the biggest threat to us is in their own backyard. So is there anything you kind of want to add to kind of close this off? I think it's worthwhile for people to kind of bone up on what I think are what I would call a privacy starter kit. And that's just practicing privacy in your own life with your own digital devices. Um, things like encrypted messaging, um, hard drive encryption on your personal computer. But um, in terms of local policies, I think it's worthwhile to actually just go to your local uh, city council meeting. Um, I've been a part of really great efforts here in the California Bay Area and elsewhere throughout the nation where a lot of these council members are quite receptive to passing reasonable ordinances that kind of just restrict 
the surveillance that their own government would conduct. Awesome. So Jonathan, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to go ahead and link to all of your work in the show notes. So that way people go ahead and connect with you and catch up on everything and more that we discussed. If uh, anyone wants to follow you or get in contact, how could they do so? Um, you can check my Twitter. It's uh, Jonathan Hofer 20. Um, you can also see my page on the independent Institute. I am featured under the blog and issues subheading. Awesome. Jonathan Hofer from the Independence Institute, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, conversations like this actually help inform your life. Sometimes they're even a little bit entertaining. I think the kids call it edutainment or something. But if you find that this is useful, if you find that this is actually going to help impact positively the life of somebody that you know, please, a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts costs you nothing but means everything to me. Helps people know what we're talking about, why they should go ahead and subscribe, and helps us get in those top trending charts. So please, a five-star rating and review takes 10 seconds. It's the best thing you can do for absolutely free. As always, we'll be back later in the week. Be safe, take care, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Like the Chris Spangle Show, Liberty Explained, The Brian Nichols Show, The Boss Hog of Liberty, Freedom Strips with Keaton Tucker, On the Run with Rimzo Martinez, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, Upward Libertarian Activism, and now hear this. Tune in now and we're going to help you sound smarter when talking with your friends. 